Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by my upcoming book, The Influencer Economy, How Creators Thrive and Share the Work They Love. I profile maker, creator, entrepreneurs like Mark Marin, Chris Hartwick, Bill Simmons, The Vlog Brothers, Hannah Hart. It's a framework for how to launch any business idea in the modern economy. Feel free to hit me up, ryan at influencereconomy.com if you're interested in collaborating around any book events. Welcome to episode number 82 of Stories from the Influencer Economy. This is Ryan Williams. Thank you so much for joining me this week. My guest is Jay Samet, the author of the book Disrupt You. Jay is an expert on how the modern world is changing at such a fast rate and how people need to adapt in the business world and how we're all one click away on our mobile phones from reaching 6 billion people. And at some point in our lives, our jobs will be disrupted. So we need to find purpose in our life and find out how to adapt to the changing economy and landscape. This podcast with Jay answers a lot of questions such as, would you rather work 40 hours a week at a job you hate or 80 hours a week doing the work you love? And a great quote from Jay is, if you have a choice, pursue your dreams or be hired by someone else to help them pursue their dreams. Reminder, if you sign up for the email list uh, at influencereconomy.com or email me, ryan, at influencereconomy.com, I would love to hear from you. I'll send you a free podcast tip sheet for how to launch and market a podcast in 2016. I'll give it out to people who email me, ryan, at influencereconomy.com. What I do is look at changes in the world and figure out how to build businesses to change the world faster. So how do you separate purpose versus passion? Because a lot of people say they're passionate about fishing, but they're never going to make a living off of it. So you really – the big mistake people do is stop thinking about yourself. All that an entrepreneur does is solve problems for others. If you solve for enough people, you solve for a billion people, you become a billionaire. And that's the way to start looking at it. So if you, if you look at your life, one of the exercises that disrupt you is to write down three problems in your life every day for a month. At the end of the month, you have 90 ideas. In the beginning, it's easy. But as the month goes on, you're going to have to look at things that you thought were immalleable, carved in stone, and say, wait a second, this is a problem. Traffic, right? Two guys sat in traffic in Tel Aviv, and one guy said, wow, the phone company knows where my phone is and knows where the other guy's phone is. If it tells me to go left, him to go right, boom, there's no more traffic. That was Waze. You don't have to be the engineer. You know, I, I've been part of launching technologies used by literally billions of people today. I've yet to write a single line of code. The only thing you need to be successful as an entrepreneur is drive and an idea. Everything else can be hired. And what's, what's your recommendation for people to how to generate uh, ideas then if they're… Look at problems. You are the only person walking in your footsteps. You're the only person to live in this moment of time and space. What do you see? What needs fixing? Who, what problems do you have that others have? I'll give you one of my favorite recent examples. Somebody walked up to me after a talk with this. Common thing that people wouldn't think of as a global problem. Did I take my medicine at lunch? Wait a second. Uh, the phone rang. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. Don't. Efficacy on drugs, huge issue. So he took those Happy Meal watches, those five-cent watches, yeah. put one on the lid of a pill bottle, and every time you close the lid, it starts the countdown. So you look at your bottle and goes, oh, it's been four minutes. Oh, yeah, I took the pill right before the call. Or no, it's been six hours. I didn't. Well, you say, that seems pretty basic. Well, 
He got the patent. And now there is a bill working its way through Congress because now that we have nationalized medicine, this will save taxpayers billions of dollars by getting people healthier quicker and make him a billionaire. So he's able to find an efficiency for people to do something in a more simple way. It solves a basic problem. And so fundamentally, when you, when you wrote Disrupt You, was, you know, leading into the inspiration for it, was it about sharing the story and the methodology for how people can put this action into their life? So I am not a guru. I am not the world's smartest person. Neither were all the friends that became billionaires over, over our careers. And what I realized is we all followed the same pattern and path. And when I looked at the world, we have some fundamental changes. And the scariest is we have 2.3 billion millennials. That is more people coming up in one generation at one time than were on the planet when my parents were born. There are not jobs for that. There are not jobs for 2 billion people. So unless we teach people how to create their own, we'll end up with a very unstable society. And if you look at the problems in Spain or in Greece or in our own inner cities in Ferguson and Baltimore, or you look at ISIS, this isn't race, culture, religion. This is massive unemployment for our youth. So how can I make it easier for the next generation? So I've dedicated the last third of my life to really trying to teach this globally and I started with a college course on it. And I had two students that went and did $150 million the first year. So it's very practical with, with advice. The, with the methodology and framework? Correct. And was it called Disrupt You at the time? No. Uh, that, they always tell you when you write a book, somewhere in your book, you'll find the title. And it was in the book. <laughs> yeah. Right. Enough times. And I go, okay, that's a great title. And it works. And what, what resonates with you about the term Disrupt You? So let me define disruption versus innovation because they, they tend to be buzzwords. So, you know, innovation is, is incrementally building on something. So, you know, cavemen made a, a short little sharp knife and then it became an iron knife and it became a sword. And then you get to my favorite scene in Indiana Jones with the big Arab swordsman and the scimitar and Indy pulls out the Smith & Wesson and goes, boom, that's disruption. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much you want to innovate and add features to a knife, the gun blows it away. Always. So... You know, making a better horse saddle doesn't make a difference when Henry Ford comes along. You could have the best run taxi cab company in the world. Uber just changed you, okay? Marriott and Starwood are merging, not because they want to be the world's largest bunches of rooms, but because Airbnb puts more people in bed each night than they do, okay? Doesn't own a building. So technology, big data, mobile, all these things are connecting us in ways that are destroying 100-year-old businesses, but at the same time, opening up the window for entrepreneurs to do things with very limited resources that scale globally. So it's funny you say that because the influencer economy is the name of my book. Influencer itself is equally a buzzword. So how did you, when you took the word disrupt, which people connote with massive disruption in technology industries with Uber and the cab industry. How did you own it and make it yours? Was it adding the term me because you're empowering people? So I didn't want to write a book for ego. I didn't want to write a book to be another book. But when I looked out there, books fell into a couple categories. One was the Jack Welsh, great guy. Here's how I did it, and here's why I'm great. And if you happen to be you know, a soldier in World War II and go to GE, da-da-da, the book applies to you. It doesn't make much sense to the rest of us. Then there were the journalists who do a great job and the college professors, all theory from the outside. Look at this trend. Look at that. Look at that. And then you got a guy like me that has been brought in to change Hollywood studios, change Sony, change Ford, change all these major corporations. 
I've been in the trenches. I've sat in an empty room where nobody believed in me and started a business that becomes a billion-dollar company. Or I've gone into a failed company and said, let's refocus and look how the world changed. And so I thought I could make it relatable. But the difference, everybody focuses on wanting to change the world, but nobody remembers that it begins with changing yourself. So self-disruption is really taking off the blinders. You and I were told in school what we were bad at. And it sounds counterintuitive, but they may have said good things, but you internalize, you can't do math, you can't read, you can't be a leader. You know, you take the Myers-Briggs, you're this personality, you're that. That is all BS. You can be whatever you want to be. And the sooner you realize that you can change, then the second third of the book is how to change any type of business. And you apply the same tools and you realize what a malleable world we live in. How easy it is why the big giant companies are fighting each other. You can go in and steal their whole future. Which is, and you see this time and time again. Because we're, yeah. a lot of us are pre-programmed by what we learned in school from our family, our friends. And you're like put into this container or a box that you're, you're good at this. Yeah, and my personal story is I knew I was a loser and a failure at five. I couldn't talk. I couldn't read. They took me to school. I was dyslexic. And they divide the kids up into reading groups. The Eagles, the Hawks, and the Mud Hens. You know, you don't need no one any wants to be a mud hen. When you're a Mud Hen, nobody wanted to be a Mud Hen. So what that's happened the, that's was... the minor leagues. Yeah, I was so, you know, I don't know what the words I would have had at five years old, but you're so, you know, embarrassed by this that the second the class had a group project, I would raise my hand. Let me be the team leader. So the kid that could read, he'll do the reading part. You do the writing part. And I learned how to run the business, not do any of the skills. Wow. Thank God I was a dyslexic. I learned how to be an entrepreneur at seven. Yeah. Right? Delegate. And fast forward. Wait. Steve Jobs, dyslexic. Richard Branson, dyslexic. You know, Walt Disney, dyslexic. Turns out it wasn't a handicap. It was an advantage. So each of us is unique. Each of us sees the world different. And that is where your value is. Now, you may not come up with the perfect idea. No one does. But in the course of exploring and killing it and trying to figure out why it doesn't work, you will stumble across further down the road than anybody else ventured, and that's where the business comes. Because a lot of people, they think that their idea has to be perfect when it launches. Or you, I talk to entrepreneurs, and they say, oh, I need to get my brand right or my logo perfect. And then when the first iteration of my product comes out, it has to be flawless. And now in the, ra- the area of raising capital from angel investors and venture firms, people think they need a big runway to create their idea, when in reality, just you yourself, you're the different, you're different than anyone else. Like, right. Can you talk more about how sure. people are their own competitive advantage? So the big mistake people think is they think you need this fully formed idea, this, this brilliant, you know, you know, eureka moment, when in fact what it is, is you're going to come with an idea that actually sucks. Your idea, your purpose isn't to nurture the idea and build a great business. Find 10 potential customers to have them each that would love the product, but have them each tell you why you suck, why it's bad. And then your goal is to plug those holes and keep on trying to resuscitate this dying, horrible idea. When you get through that, you will end up with what I call the zombie idea, the idea that cannot be killed, the walking dead. That's when you start spending your money. The big mistake is money is so easy to get right now. Mm-hmm. Crowdfunding, ventures, venture capital spent in 2015, over $40 billion, okay? And I have yet to find a venture capitalist that says, you know, that idea we invested in became a success. Every major company 
pivoted. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a, you know, a classic example. Right when broadband was coming on, three guys sat down and said, wait a second, all these dating sites have a still picture. They're really popular. We're going to put videos. They'll be up to date. You'll get the person's accent. You can see if it's out of date, all that kind of stuff. And they quickly built the site. It was called TuneIn Hookup. And boom, nobody wanted to date these losers. Their business sucked, but they looked at the data. And the data said nobody wanted to date these people, but they were all referring these videos to their friends. Basically, look what I get to choose between. Look how bad the world is. Whatever you know, the, the schadenfreuder was. And so they changed the name of TuneIn Hookup to YouTube. And they became billionaires the first year in business without ever making a dime of profit. And that's what happened with uh, Instagram. It was originally it, like a four-square check-in type technology. Everything pivots, and that's, and that's the whole point. But if you sit there, so Reid Hoffman, who wrote the intro to, to Disrupt You, and I'll go on the record as the smartest human being I've ever yeah, met. Yeah, actually, I just, I just interviewed Chris Yeh, who wrote The Alliance with Reid. Yeah. So Reid has an expression that an entrepreneur's job is to jump off a cliff and assemble a plane on the way down. Yeah. So don't, don't wait till you have all the steps and all the answers. The world doesn't work that way. You know, there's nobody that bright, okay? Go out. And learn and quickly iterate. And as you're iterating, you're burning less and less cash and getting further and further. And when it seems daunting, don't give up because of where you are. Look over your shoulder and realize how far you've come. Because the big mistake that people make is not understanding the difference between failure and failing. Right. Right? The symbol of an idea is a light bulb. Why? Because Thomas Edison had 10,000 failures before he came up with one that worked. Okay. A true failure is throwing in the towel. So don't be afraid of failing. It's part of our, our zeitgeist. By the way, it is the reason why America is competitive. The rest of the world has a huge fear of failing. Um, I was brought to Russia to help them with an incubator with a billion dollars, and nobody was taking the money because people were afraid. You take the money from, from the Russian government, uh, you lose it. You're, they dig up your grandparents. Um, we, we would not be having this conversation. Exactly. Uh, But look at our cultural icons, regardless of the generation that you grew up. It's either Homer Simpson or I Love Lucy or the Honeymooners. The storyline was the same. Homer gets a get-rich-quick idea. It fails miserably, and life goes on. Walt Disney filed bankruptcy several times before Disney Studios. Henry Ford, same thing. Um, I tell the story in the book about two guys that I got to work with early on who had the genius idea. 30-something years ago, hook up a computer to traffic lights and synchronize traffic to reduce congestion. Genius. No city planner could understand what these kids were talking about. So Trafo Data went belly up. Their second company that Bill Gates and Paul Allen started was called Microsoft. Right. So if you had a fear of failing or you said, oh, my God, I tried a company, I tried this idea, and it failed, you'll see most of the successful people had several failures before the one that hit. And there's also uh, one of my favorite books on that note is The Dip by Seth Godin. Where they, yeah. he talks about if you're, it's okay to quit something. If you feel like yeah. you're not going to be the best in the world at this, then try something you want to be the best in the world at. And that quitting yeah. isn't a bad thing. And if your idea is not working and you pivot to something else, you're just quitting one aspect of your idea, but you can pivot and build something brilliant completely you, within the same time frame. You learned what not to do. Yeah. I mean, my axiom, my, my you know, Samet's law is basically be the best in the world at what you do or the only one doing it. Mm -hmm. Because if you're the only one doing it, by definition, you're the best. I mean, right now, 
we have Internet of Things experts and Bitcoin experts and social media experts. Where did these people come from? They just printed up a business card one day and declared, I am the Bitcoin expert, and then fight tooth and nail to defend that turf. Right. You know, they weren't ordained by God. Yep. So there is so much new opportunity, and there's so much information that you're one click away. You can be the most knowledgeable person on earth on that one thing. Well, how do you differentiate between the people that are the fakers that just plant their flagpole down and then catch up? Because oftentimes people, they say, fake it till you make it as an entrepreneur. But that's not always the case because people fake it and then they somehow can engineer success off of that. But oftentimes people fake it and they make it and they're frauds. So how do you find that integrity to really plant your flagpole down and assert yourself as the leader in that category but not be too much far ahead of yourself? So the difference is only known between your own two ears, okay? I can't make up a lie and sell it. But I can sell something that I believe I can make true. So when I got out of college, I had bought into the social framework, the promise that if I got good grades, I'd get a good job and live happily ever after and get that gold watch. UCLA. So went into school, missed one on my SAT, got all the good grades, did everything, and boom, I'm released into a recession. Nobody's hiring college grads. The few jobs out there, you need 10 years experience, all this crazy stuff. And I had two young kids, uh, and I'm like, what am I going to do? So I printed up business cards, made up a company, Jasmine Productions, J. Allen Salmon, it's mine. I was going to compete with, with George Lucas, ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, the, the poor man special effects. You want Star Wars on, on a beer budget, right? <laughs> I have no equipment, no experience, have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, but I hustled. And you get a few hundred thousand dollars worth of business real quick. And so at that point, by your definition, am I a fraud or not? But I knew that I could find the guys to hire that would know how to do it. Because most people would rather be wage slaves. They'd rather have this, they give up their ambition for security. You know, the old expression, security robs ambition? Yeah. Not true. It's the illusion of security robs ambition. Because whether you choose to or not, every career will be disrupted. And next time you lose your job, you didn't lose your job. It's not a car keys, okay? You actually chose to give up your job. Because you didn't make yourself indispensable. You didn't make yourself unique. You made yourself disposable, right? Like a cigarette butt. So what you really have to do is go out there with a belief that you will do whatever it takes to make your word true, to make your product happen. And once I had built Jasmine up, I didn't get a normal job until I sold the company years later where major corporations came in, you know, EMI, a 100-year-old music company, looked at Napster and go, "Uh uh-oh, we have no future. So here's the card keys, Jay, change the business. So was was Jasmine the first company that you sold? Yes. And that that was your opportunity that you created for yourself that validated you to the outside market in business? Yeah, but I really thought that my claim to fame would be I was the guy that made the first laser disc. Remember those big 12-inch yeah, platters? You should you talk know. to my dad. He, he was bullish on that technology. Thank, thank him for me. We um, had the coolest uh, laser disc player on our block, and I, I think we watched uh, some Tom Cruise movie. Can't remember which one, and he was so excited. But it didn't record, and it went through the same sales channel as VCRs, and so it didn't disrupt. But that technology went on to become the CD. Uh, but... So you worked on the team, you, you all invented that? Um, yeah. So I put the first video on a computer, did the first download, the first album, all those various things. That's a great trivia answer that you're a part of. Yeah. Oh, my life's, my life's a footnote to trivia. <laughs> uh, but in each one of these, you know, when I was in my 20s, I thought 
this was the end all. This is where the, the nth state. And what I quickly realized was companies were inventing, spending millions and millions of dollars to invent new technology with no idea what to do with it in the marketplace. And today, when I deal with different research universities around the world, they spend billions inventing things for no reason. Their job, you know, the scientific method isn't to monetize something. It's to discover something. So there's tons of patents sitting there that you can use for free. Yeah. You know, NASA has a website with over a thousand patents that they'll give you if you want to go commercialize them. Because their job was we figured out Velcro or we figured out Tang or whatever. You figured out the product. I mean, you have a piece of NASA space equipment in your house, the Dustbuster. Uh-huh. They were trying to figure out how do you get dust up off of the moon surface without gravity, right? So, so there's endless opportunities and some fun ones too. So what do you do with cynical people? Because I talked to a lot of cynical people about the influencer economy and over time it just like, you know, gets old because people – you have incredible optimism. Well, I, I, here's, you, here's you had a company called person. Jasmine that you printed business cards for because you knew you could close the deal and hire the right people. So obviously you're optimistic that you can deliver results. But well, in general, like what right. do you do with people that say, you know what, that's not realistic or that's not me? So here's the simple thing. Have you ever heard a good idea from somebody in a bad mood? Never. No. Never. You're, you're emotionally shut down. You're mentally shut down. You just see the world as woe as me. Oh my God, I'm in traffic, okay? As opposed to the guys saying, ooh, how do we solve traffic? Um, if you start every day with the following two things. Say one, today can be better than yesterday. It's true. Yeah. And I have the power to make it so. If you start with that affirmation, that's called effectuation. It puts your mind in a mindset. This isn't tree hugging, walk through coals, right. mumbo We're not jumbo. doing self-help in Venice Beach right here. This is pure science behind it. Right. You know, uh, Jim Carrey was homeless in the back of a car trying to make it as a comic. He sat down and wrote a check to himself for $10 million. That's dreaming. But the second he put a date on that check, that's a plan. And you work towards that. And a month before that mythical check should have been cashed, he signed the contract for $10 million for Dumb and Dumber. You know, every athlete imagines himself crossing the finish line. That's what gets them through the training and the workout. It's not saying if you think about it, it magically happens. It puts you in a path of mindset to be open. So you start seeing the possibility. And those people that you cannot change, be glad that you can't change them because they become customers of the things that you bothered to create. <laughs> and they'll be the first ones to come up with you. Oh, I had that idea too. Yeah. Oh, yeah? I, I, I had that idea. I love those people. I thought about that three years ago, but I decided it wasn't a big enough market. Right. And, and again, I, I was talking to a friend the other day, you know, <laughs> I'm known for all these things that I created and they asked me what I'm most proud of. I'm like, one day when I'm famous, I'll do a speech of all the things that I didn't get off the ground because I, I couldn't articulate the future in a way. One of my earliest products, in it was 89, I had this idea called Digital Mailman that we were working on. Uh-huh. Instead of making something on a computer, printing it out, putting in the fax machine and sending it, what if I typed something on my computer and sent it through the internet to you on your computer? Right. And you'd have a digital mailbox. So, so that thing called email... Um, it didn't make it to the top of my list of something to work on. <laughs> that little thing that AOL built a great yep. engine for. What about people that are listening right now and they think, I have 30 ideas or you know, I'm going to write my ideas out. How do I prioritize? Because they want to make money and they're at a job they hate and they're thinking, that how can they leave or pivot their career? So 
your job is a means to the end. You have to, you know, feed the babies, need shoes. You have to do all that. But you're putting eight hours a day into that. Put eight hours a day into yourself and in, 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 in creating value. The best way to weigh what you should focus on is there's two axes. One is what's the size of the market, okay? I have, you know, something for 80-year-old left-handed women that like to knit. Not the biggest market. Not a growing market. Okay. The other one is that pill thing. I have something that anybody taking medication, their life will be better. Wow, that's a pretty big market. Then the other axis is, do you care about it? Well, the pill bottle sounds like it's a big market, but I'm really not that passionate about saving people's lives. But uh, I really want to work outdoors, and I've come up with a, a better you know, backpack, uh, whatever it might be. So weigh your passion versus market size. Uh, and then go about finding mentors, finding experts in the field, finding people that don't praise you because more entrepreneurs are killed by praise than anything else, but tell you why it is the worst idea and find the flaws in it. Because the faster you can iterate away the flaws and get to that zombie idea, the quicker for you to make money. So let's talk more about the zombie idea. So this is The Walking Dead, right? and people can't kill it because You it's... can't find any flaw with it. Okay? And so how long does it take for people? Because I, I think listening to the podcast, people may ask, well, Uber... You know, it was a bunch of technology experts that had started previous companies. Bill Gates was a genius programmer at a young age. Steve Jobs, the same way. Like, a lot of us are set up. People went to Stanford. They started Instagram. Like, what if you're not someone who, you know, you live in Des Moines, Iowa, where I well, grew let's, up? Let's, let's talk about the number one business that fails, a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Okay? Everybody starts a restaurant, and they 99% of the people start from the same thing. I have this great recipe for blank. Restaurants do not become successful or fail because of the food, okay? should be obvious, but it isn't. Yeah. So a guy did the, did the this, uh, um, mental steps, the same that I outlined in the book, and he looked at restaurants and he said, why do they fail? Number one, too many items on the menu. So if everything doesn't sell and you have spoilage, there goes your profits. So he's going to make a restaurant with only three items on the menu. Number two... Your rent is your biggest cost. So if at lunchtime, if two people are sitting at a table of four, you can't monetize those other chairs. So he's only going to seat people filling up every seat, which means you're going to sit with strangers, Mm -hmm. okay? Number three, if you have to sit with strangers, that means you're going to wait at the bar until the table's ready because that'll run up the bar tab and increase your average average ARPU per customer. So that was the premise. So now he has to say to himself, what is a cuisine or a concept that can embrace so three, those? Three at a menu, you sit with strangers. And you're going to have to wait at a bar okay. for that moment, okay? Yep. And the concept was Benihana. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, I want to open a Japanese restaurant. It's a tepiak table. You'll come for the entertainment of watching the show of the guy making it. You have a choice, beef, chicken, or fish. That's it, mm-hmm. okay? And it's been a super profitable business for decades. Most people don't go about thinking of restaurants from that way or any business. And so in Disrupt You, we talk about if you're doing a research business or a marketing business, which piece of the value chain, it's where is the value captured in a business and just focus on that piece, that one What do you mean by value captured? So um, the example I use in the book is a diamond mine, okay? It must cost a fortune and employ a ton of people to dig up a whole side of a mountain to find a pocket full of stones, Okay tens of thousands of people, very expensive, okay? 
But then there's somebody sitting in Amsterdam that takes that rock and just cuts it and turns it into, you know, that engagement ring type stone. That's where the value is created. So maybe that's the piece of that business. But what if you could sit in a lab and make artificial diamonds, okay, real diamonds, you know, compressed coal? You could cut out all those people and just have all the value right there, okay? So in each business, you have to focus on where that value is created. And too many people get lost on the wrong thing. When I went to EMI, they thought they were in the record business. For 100 years, they manufactured round things that were sold at a store that somebody bought. And along, you can now steal every song. No one's going to buy round things. This is late 90s? Yeah, you're out of business. And somebody named Ralph Simon came up with the idea, even though nobody would buy a song, this is pre-iTunes, what if we sold 10 seconds of a song for $2? A ringtone. Mm -hmm. The first year, ringtones did $1.6 billion. That's incredible. Okay. So you're not in the record business. You're in the monetizing music business. The, the, mu- the partner uh, that ran publishing, Marty Bandier, smartest guy in music publishing at that time, everybody's fighting to get a song in a TV commercial, song in a TV commercial, song in a TV commercial. But halfway around the world, people came up with cheap electronics that you could now have a piece of music in a greeting card or you could put in every plush toy would now sing a, you know, a, a jolly Merry Christmas, yeah. whatever. So he sent his guys over to My mom every- loves those cards. They sing like... Every factory in Asia, yeah, and he was the only one calling. So every one of those cards, every one of those plush animals, that 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 um, uh, uh, I forget the name of the the bass fish on the plaque that sang. Every one of those was yeah. an EMI song. So EMI did hundreds the, of millions the of dollars. Bass fish. That's yeah. right. So we have you to thank for that. No, that was Marty. But it's <laughs> it's that thinking different, you know. You can't go head on and say, I'm going to compete the same way. And by the way, your big companies are focused on competing with big companies. They don't care what you're doing. So what about like a a hobby person? What do you believe? Like let's say I have a day job and – I'll give you the greatest hobby story. It's not in the book. So my hobby – This is exclusive content. Exclusive content. So I'm supposedly the foremost expert in the world on digital media, okay? And I've – done a ton and get paid a fortune by big companies on that space. But my personal passion is I'm a performing magician. I paid my way through college as a magician. Are you a member of the Magic Castle? I perform at the Magic oh, Castle. Nice. I've been a member 30 years. I need to come see you. So in I my love that place. Thank you. Um, in my hobby, okay, the way the magic, the corner magic store disappeared and the way that it's morphed today is somebody will do a trick on YouTube and then you can... PayPal them money, and they'll send you a video to teach you how to do it. And occasionally, you need a little secret something, so they have to mail it to you. Mm-hmm. Make a long story short, there's a trick going around. I couldn't figure it out. I go, this is a great trick for me to do in business meetings. Unbelievable. I love the trick. Uh, send the guy the money, and I get a package in the mail, and it's the wrong trick. So I call him, and he's a college-age kid. And I said, Daniel, I, you, know, you sent me the wrong thing. So, oh, I'm so sorry. Daniel. He doesn't know about pickpacking ship and how to run a business. So I started asking him the numbers that he's doing. He was doing more sales than David Blaine's website, more sales than any magic shop website. He had invented, just by going on YouTube, the primary way that magic is sold globally. Mm-hmm. And yep. what he did in understanding social media, instead of making every trick his name, when a new trick... When somebody would approach him about adding a trick to his site, 
he would let it be in that person's name. And then people would upload videos that are in the, the, the streets of Beijing or in the streets of, of Madagascar or wherever, somebody doing that trick right. to show how quickly it goes globally. Yeah. And it became the eBay of magic. Oh, so wow. every passion, every hobby can do that. Here's a billion-dollar idea that if I had the time I would do right now, 3D printing. We all know it's the greatest thing. You can 3D print metal, wood, you know, plaster, gold, food, 3D print uh, wedding cake toppers, whatever you want to do. Where is that eBay community where, oh, I just took my kid to see Spider-Man. I want to make a Spider-Man Lego. I can either download the model for free or pay for it. Right. Where is that marketplace for all the 3D things? Yeah. That, yeah. that will be a billion-dollar community. Yeah. So it's interesting. You seem to have like a bigger market perspective about how trends fit in and products that businesses and people can build around them. So what about someone like the a blogger or a hobby person that's not into technology or maybe doesn't have the passion around that? Like, is there a way to apply Disrupt You to people that are creating content, whether it's a podcast or self-publishing a book? Absolutely. So it then comes down to who benefits from this and how do you reach that audience? And for content, the best way is there's very few pieces of content that can afford the marketing costs that it would take to be well enough known, okay, including my own. But there is always some other audience out there that wants to read that same crowd. So you've come up with the, you know, perfect mommy blog of, of you know, the 10 tips per month to make being a newborn's mother easier, yeah. okay? Well, to find all those moms would be pretty tough. But you know what? Pampers and Gerbers wants to find all those moms. They'll spend fortune to find those moms, and they'd love to deliver your content and not take a penny from you. Right. If anything, they might pay you. Yeah. So, so I'll give you a great example. I'm sitting at Sony, and I'm tasked with they're going to launch a store to compete with iTunes. iTunes is established. Everybody knows it. How are we going to ever afford to spend up against Apple? And they were spending over $100 million a year advertising iTunes. And my budget was zippity-doo-dah. Uh, so I said, okay, who has a problem out there? Who can I brainstorm that I can solve their problem? And two companies came to mind. One was United Airlines. They were coming out of bankruptcy. And they wanted the world to know that they'd be around. Mm-hmm. What does that have to do with digital music? Absolutely nothing. But in Jay's Disrupt You mind... Not a problem. So I went to him and said, what if people could use frequent flyer miles to buy downloads? What if we did a concert at 35,000 feet? What if we have Sheryl Crow do a concert from Chicago to L.A., fill the plane with press, lead all four network evening news, get 600 newspaper stories, and boom, have millions and millions of people come to my store? Yeah. At the same time, uh, Spurlock had a movie called Supersize Me right. and McDonald's was dying. Great movie. So I went to McDonald's and said, what if I can make you hip and cool again? What if every time you buy a Big Mac, you get a free track? McDonald's spent $60 million on TV commercials. Justin Timberlake did the TV commercial. I mean, everything went absolutely perfect. And the first day I opened my digital download store, 20 million customers came in. My cost of marketing, $0.00. And zero cents. Yep. So then in the, in the end, you're, you're sort of like a translator, it seems like, with media, big companies, and, and getting maximum exposure. So back to your – yeah, but back to your thing. Anybody that has creative content out there, look at OPM, other people's money. Look at somebody else that is short on Use content it. and ideas right? but is big on having money. Yes. <laughs> right? And you can supply them with the audience the ideas. or the ideas, yeah. 
like sponsorship dollars is what you're saying or just having them take 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 your content out to the masses use their platform exactly so for disrupt you then why do you think you're using your model the right person to write this book well couple things so one i'll tell you i have an out of this idea i wonder if i should do that publicly so i had a very innovative idea that was how I was going to originally launch the book. If you flip through the book on almost every page, there's a tweet, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. They're synthesizing that page down to a tweet, and I'm a rabid tweeter. You can, you can follow me on Twitter, at Jay Samet. I got about 100,000 business people to follow me. But the original concept was the digital version of the book. When you're reading it, you click on the tweet, and it would send it out from you with a link back to the book. Yep. This would turn Twitter into an e-commerce platform, and 35% of e-commerce was uh, mobile e-commerce was books. They would be the biggest bookseller in the world. Right. There was a turmoil and change of management at Twitter, and their part of the bargain fell through. Interesting. Didn't happen. But that would be my disruptive way to market a book. Yeah, totally. Because I'm reading a quote right now. It says, you have a choice, pursue your dreams, or be hired by someone else to help them fulfill their dreams. That is content marketing 101. It's shareable. People love a good quote on Twitter. Right. And, uh, and then it could drive traffic, and then Twitter could get a cut of the deal. And you would have more books that reach people potentially. Right. And my purpose wasn't to make money on this. My purpose was really to try to help the next generation. And also, no matter where you are in your life, whether by choice or circumstance, your career will be disrupted. So, you know, there's a lot of people... 35, 45, 55 that suddenly get laid off. Their company disappears. They, you know, newspapers go out of business, magazines, radio, and they go, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. Right? Well, here is a way to look at yourself different and realize what aspects and assets you do have that can make you more valuable and actually make losing your job the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. So I got laid off from a company. We were a startup acquired by Disney, and I rocked the boat. They, they were supposed to give me a raise. didn't really happen. And then a couple months later, I actually read The Dip. And I was like, you know what? I gave uh, This is probably isn't for me. But they laid me off. And I got a new job at the startup called Machinima, which is a video game YouTube yep, network. Yeah, them well. Two weeks later, I had severance and a new job. I made more money. Without that job, I, I, I wouldn't have thought about the influencer economy. I mean, I've had multiple jobs since then. This was you know five years ago. But sometimes being laid off is like a gift because people can tell you that, hey – what you're doing isn't working for you. Find a place where it works. And then you internalize and like there's a certain hunger that you have to protect yourself if you want to survive. Well, I'll give you the, my favorite one of those stories that it, that's the most amazing of all of them. Same story. A guy went to – got it in and, and, and pulled every connection, got an interview at Facebook. And he told them his idea of what he thought the next mobile version should be and how people would want to communicate and how to make this a global thing. And they didn't hire him. Yeah. Right? Whatever reason, they didn't get it. And he was basically living in his car. And less than two years later, they buy WhatsApp from him uh-huh. for $17 billion. Oh, yeah. He offered it to them for free. Yep. They turned it down for free. Amazing story. Happens every day. Yeah. A lot of these companies, like Politico, started at the Washington Post. You know? Uh, yeah. Hit, hit, I mean, like where they pitched the idea, like, hey, let's do blogs. Let's just do website content, no physical paper. And the Post's like, nah. Not going to work. Or I'll tell you my favorite thing that happens almost all the time when I'm in a big audience is everybody goes, oh, I've got this idea, but I don't want to tell you, uh, you know, we sign an NDA. I've got this top seat. No one's going to steal your stupid idea. No. 
when you see how much work it is to turn an idea, which free float in space, into an actual business, oh, yeah. you'll realize why ideas don't get stolen. Yes. People right? ask me to sign NDAs, and I say, I'm, it's really not worth signing it for me or right. you. And if you don't take this seriously enough, then that's fine. Blockbuster owned home video coast to coast. Yeah. Their competition didn't secretly name themselves something else. They named themselves Netflix. They didn't name themselves DVDs in your mailbox flicks. They told them in the <laughs> title what they were going to do. They gave away the secret. And yeah. Blockbuster arrogantly just goes, eh, you're a flea. I'm a dinosaur. It's not for us. Yeah. So for, uh, let's talk about the book and a couple more questions. Um, so how was the process to write the book? I love writing. So uh, I was an editor of my college paper. I loved writing. I realized that there's no real money in writing. So that was always in the back of my mind. I wrote, wrote for years also a column uh, for the Wall Street Journal, and now I write for Inc. Uh, I enjoy writing. Uh, it's how I fill my times in airplanes. So that's been fun. And then what about the um, process of promoting the book? How's that going? A lot, a lot of work in the 21st century because there are no TV outlets unless you're a desperate housewife or you have a cooking recipe, you know, 10 days to thinner thighs and I'd be all over the Today Show, right? Showing people how they can have freedom and have a career that they enjoy and, you know, really, would you rather work 40 hours a week at a job that you hate or 80 hours a week at a job that you love? Um, it's funny, I gave a speech yesterday and you could have a thousand people in the room, okay, which there were. And you hear a pin drop the second I ask this question. Are you living life or just paying bills until you die? And if you really stop and look at your own life, yeah. unless you believe in reincarnation, why are you trading a day, a week, a year, 10 years of your life for something that you don't believe in? You will not live forever, but what you create can. So promoting takes a lot of work. It's the generosity of people like you and your listeners to to have me on the show. And what I've loved about podcasters is as a medium, you're not Leno versus Letterman. You're not at each other's throats. No. Every single podcast I finish, the host goes, do you know such and such? Yeah. You should do their show too. And I'm going, thank you. That's so generous. It's incredibly collaborative. And I did a podcast in Australia and the book went to number one in Australia. Oh, that's awesome. I, I wish there was a, a, a way to, to make that happen in, in, in our country, but I continue to, you know, Spend the time. But no, you got to do what you got to do. And, and that's, speaking of that, I did want to mention a gift that I have for your Absolutely. listeners. So Disrupt You is 291 pages that I believe will change your life. And to help you, I also made a workbook, 40-page workbook with exercises to help you flush out what is a good idea, how can you change yourself, how can you come through the self-disruption process with an action plan. And I will send that to any one of your listeners for free, my gift for them spending the time together. Just go to jsamet.com or reach out to me at jsamet on Twitter, and we will send that right out to you um, for me. So jsamet.com or at jsamet, and you want to spell it for everyone? J-A-Y-S-A-M as in Mary, I-T as in Tom. Thank you very yep. much. Have a good one. That was Jay Samet. Check him out, jsamet.com, at jsamet on Twitter. And his best-selling book, Disrupt You, is available everywhere, like Amazon and other fine retailers. Quick update on my book. I'm finalizing the cover to get the Amazon presale up in February, on the 7th of February. And working on the tagline, so really excited about that. But uh, the 10 chapters are done, so really excited to get that out to the masses. Head over to Duke Siebert's right now for some chicken in the pot. Thanks so much for listening.
Mm-hmm. <laughs>